Welcome to the Sports Pro Podcast with Sports Pro Editor Owen Connolly, getting inside the sports industry and recording it on audio. Hi everyone and welcome to the Sports Pro Podcast. Joining you after a week at the Sports Health Convention in Monaco. Um, with me, as always, is Sports Pro's senior writer, Adam Nelson. Hi, Adam. Hi, Owen. Hi, everyone else. No one else in the room at the moment. Plenty of people in the room um, for much of the week just gone, or the week just gone as we're speaking, um, at the world's biggest sport and media convention out there in uh, in muggy Monte Carlo. Um, some of the big stories going into this year's Sportel were to do with traditional viewership um, declines in ratings year on year in, in the Premier League and the NFL. Um, lots of things to attribute that to, from the, uh, the presidential debates in the US to um, cord cutting and, and, and multiple viewing sources. But certainly the mood in the air at Sportel was very much about changes in the, in the broadcast model and changes in the TV and other watching habits of sports fans around the world. Um, what were some of the big stories that you, you felt were, were being discussed out there on, on the conference floor and on the casino floor and the, uh, just the floor in the early hours of the morning in, in Monaco? Yeah, I think that's it. I think, um, you know, in the run-up to Sportel, we saw a, a spate of articles about um, the declining viewing figures of the Premier League this season as well and, uh, and broadcasters panicking about whether people are tuning out from the kind of traditional linear broadcast experience and uh, while that's not necessarily the way the wind is blowing right now um, Sportel, it was certainly it was my first Sportel but it was notable that there were a lot fewer stands than I expected from traditional broadcasters um, a lot less debate going on around traditional broadcasting uh, the uh, entirety of the agenda was made up uh, about from OTT broadcasters, uh, the first one as you entered was Le Sports, had their, had their booth and they're obviously kind of driving that agenda in China um, and then all the way through the rest of the place uh, you've got VR and uh, digital broadcasters trying to, trying to push their push their line of work mm. I mean we'll, we'll come on to the VR stuff in a bit but certainly it did seem to be through the, the stands that were on display but particularly through the conversations that you'd have with people at, at events and, and just on the, on the floor and and in meetings and so on, that it's a really good time to be a company that does digital infrastructure for broadcasters that can create, you know, workable apps and, and workable um, digital streaming offerings. Yeah, so um, one of the uh, big things was um, how to push sport to a social media audience, social media market, and one of the big ways of doing that was so many uh, people, companies trying to push their um, graphical content that, that lays over the top of sports that makes something, that makes a, a kind of banal uh, 15 second clip into something more exciting and something more engageable for uh, sharing on Twitter and on Facebook. Mm. Yeah, um, I think, you know, it, it's important to, to note at this point, first of all, that nobody is suggesting that the traditional broadcast experience or the linear. Uh, broadcast experience is going away um, the other thing is that no one is panicking just yet about the value of, of sports rights at least in the kind of medium term and it was telling that while we were in Monaco um, Pitch International 
completed a deal with, with the FA for, for the overseas rights to the FA Cup, um, our domestic knockout competition here in, in England in, in, uh, in football, for what some people were reporting to be around a billion dollars. But what it may be is that, you know, live sport is not not the uh, the golden goose that it once was, but instead it's about being able to create an offering that the audiences whose tastes are changing um, are able to, to lap up. Yeah, there's no one panicking yet, but I do think there's cause for concern. Um, and I think there are broadcasters who are concerned because if, if live uh, sport isn't what people are after then they're not necessarily going to go to traditional linear broadcasters for it. Um, and uh, at the moment, Sky and BT in the UK and uh, similar broadcasters overseas, uh, their subscription rates aren't falling because people are st- still taking the packages, even if they're not necessarily tuning into sport. Mm. But uh, it's perfectly possible that across the next 5, 10, 15 years, that, well, it's, it's probable and almost certain that that is going to happen, that they're those are going to start to decline and then it's how do they react to that and deal with it um, and not just the broadcasters but rights holders as well how they take back control of having traditionally sold rights en masse to a broadcaster so that the broadcaster will take nearly everything and then be the ones to distribute it and play it mm-hmm. do rights holders now take an approach where they're keeping more control over certain elements of what they're putting out in order to then capitalise on the non-live experience and the, the non-appointment viewing, the on-demand experience in, in highlight and smaller form. Mm. Well, of course, one of the almost sports that is, um, that's prominent at Sportel every year, um, sports entertainment property, the world's leading sports entertainment property, I think, the WWE, always very, very prominent on the exhibition floor there in, in the main hall at the Grimaldi Forum. Um, and that is very much their approach. They do have live events that go pay-per-view with traditional broadcasters. They have, you know, uh, package programming for, you know, Sky Sports in the UK and I'm not sure who elsewhere in the world, but they they are, you know, they, they pursue that line. But then they've also got their own OTT offering, which they've got slightly ahead of the market in, in sports terms for because, of course... I guess it's easier to, to prepackage stuff when you know what you're prepackaging. Um, but they've been working with ML BAM uh, for a couple of years now, the, the Major League Baseball uh, advanced media operation out there. And I guess that is is going to be the way that more rights holders are going to have to think of what they've got. They're, they're content producers, and it's not just about the live sports experience. It's about everything around that, and it's about making people want to live that all the time. Any evidence of, of that that you saw? Anyone who you thought right they're doing something with their with their stuff that, that's really forward thinking? Um, not necessarily uh, in, in the immediate term but I think it's interesting to um, to look at the NBA had their own stand there and when we talked about the most marketable athletes um, a few podcasts back mm. um, former sports pro podcast Late of this parish, David Cushnan was talking about how um, uh, Stephen Curry's success can be put down to, partly down to him, him playing games, which are then seen as the East Coast of America wakes up. And that's, mm. that's something that the NBA has done really, really well to retain certain elements of what it puts out and uh, really capitalise on that, on that mm. very well around the world. Mm. Um, and I think they're looking... The way that they market games as well is not quite... 
a perfect comparison, but similar to uh, WWE's, the way it has, uh, it will have the kind of structured pay-per-view events, which are one a month, uh, and then of, of course in between you have all the smaller things that the, uh, as you said, the, the kind of hardcore fans will tune in for, mm. and uh, the way the NBA markets its big games is like those kind of, or similar to boxing as well, where it will have these big top card events. Mm. Yeah, and it's easier. I mean. Uh, also prominent at Sportel and just taken over by WME IMG is, is UFC, which is a kind of WWE-like promotion in that it controls you know, the destinies of all its fighters, not quite as literally as WWE does, but you know, it's, it's got a, a strong hand in matchmaking, it's got a strong hand in event promotion, and it's able to, to decide how its content is going to work. There's not multiple stakeholders as there are in, for example, the Premier League or the Champions League. Um, and so an OTT offering is, is probably more in its future. Of course, the traditional broadcast giants as well, as we discuss at quite some length and quite across a few features in, uh, in issue 90 of SportsPro, out now, um, are also looking to that OTT thing. But that you know, is a question of, of breaking away or, or seeing um, the breakup coming of the big premium cable or satellite TV package. And that's an area where American sports have the ascendancy as well because of the franchise system. Uh, they're not kind of beholden to the, um, the various stakeholders that, that European sports are. I mean, they, they are to an extent, but not, not nearly to the same. They're not uh, under the thumb of the clubs in the same way that something like the Premier League or La Liga is where Real Madrid or Manchester United really rule the roost. The, um, the US rights holders can really hold their own rights uh, a lot more steadily and have a lot more control over that than... Their European counterparts are allowed, and I think that's going to be somewhere where they're going to be playing catch up uh, in the OTT era. Mm. There are, of course, always new markets which emerge. The, the aforementioned Pitch International uh, had a, a, a small gathering in um, uh, in Monaco to, to announce their partnership with Rushmans, who are pioneering the exploitation of commercial rights in Cuba. Um, and a market potentially emerging from its trade embargo with, with the US. Um, there's always already been a rapprochement, um, which is a lovely diplomatic phrase, um, which is leading to, to more opportunities there. And, and Rushman's and, and Pitch are going to be working on uh, a collaboration around the rights of the National Baseball League there. Um, but the the other dimension, of course, that you you brought up earlier was was VR, um, and there's there's kind of two categories to this. One, I think, is possibly going to come into the the kind of data overlay thing and and everything else, and that's augmented reality. Um, but but VR itself, the the art of putting somebody in the space and and watching. Uh, sport or watching something unfold in front of them it's it's a fun experience but it, it strikes me that nobody has quite cracked what they're going to do with it yet yeah I mean we've talked about it several times on this podcast I think and it is it's still very much experimental and it's still difficult to believe that anyone is going to be using it as their primary broadcast experience whether that's mm. the viewer or the broadcasters themselves I don't think even they really envisage that this is going to be something that people use to watch sports um but it's it's getting there. I, I had a go on uh, the sports um, their their own headset that they manufacture, and it's certainly the best experience that I've had. Having you know every conference you go to now has someone demonstrating VR, and theirs was the best one that I've had a go on so far. It was it was 
properly immersive and mm. it helped that the headset kind of uh, goes all the way around your head and you feel like you're encased in this world that you're looking at um, but certainly it's still got a lot to figure out in terms of how they're going to use it um, and I guess that in a way that kind of dovetails with the idea of the non-live experience being in the ascendancy looking more towards packaging up those rights and packaging up uh, smaller segments of sports and then using that as the, as the VR uh, product. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely something that's more interesting at the moment, I guess, to, to teams and to rights holders to an extent um, than it perhaps is to broadcasters or to anyone who's looking at the, you know, the, the typical broadcast experience. For one thing, having to put that headset on is going to turn people off watching a full game. But it's fun to do for a few minutes at a time, and it's fun to, to, you know, market the idea of joining Leicester City on the pitch when they lift the Premier League trophy, or going, you know, to a barbecue with a US team or whatever. Um, and I wonder if if that, at least for the next few years, is where it's going to end up as that kind of branded, um, branded short form experience. Yeah, it's, it's a novelty at the moment, isn't it? But I I think. Um you know the noises at Sportel are that they want to make it more serious. They want to take it more seriously, and they want to do a lot more with it than is currently possible. But I think you're right that at the moment it's it's for that kind of fan experience more than it is for uh, actually watching anything across. It's it's engagement and uh, you're fan directed. Okay, we're going to leave it there for for part one of the podcast. Uh, join us after the break when we'll be hearing from some more people who've been to Sportel. Welcome back to the Sports Pro Podcast. We are going to move right along with this Sportel Monaco wrap. We've already discussed how digital technologies are changing the headline viewer experience in sport, but they're also having a profound effect right across sports media. Um, a little later in part two, we'll be hearing from Sport Radar's Brad Van Whaley about the many possibilities of data distribution. But before that, let's have a listen to SNTV Managing Director Martin Kay. Uh, who's going to be talking to us about news gathering and dissemination in the digital age. So Martin Kay, welcome to the Sports Pro Podcast. Thank you very much, glad to be here. Um, so SNTV have been celebrating the 20th anniversary or will be celebrating a 20th anniversary at some point uh, this year. I mean, what? Um, how would you characterise the, the big changes in how sports news has been delivered in that period? I think one of the key changes is uh, actually in terms of how we receive content. So rather than having to spend a lot of money on a you know, satellite feed from somewhere and all the technical equipment needed to do that, and increasingly news content is delivered by FTP, which means we receive a lot more content, we can turn it around more quickly, and that coupled with the delivery piece where we're no longer working on a sort of bulletin schedule, we're working literally as soon as content comes in, we try and turn it around. I mean, our output has probably doubled in the last five years, so that's partly because of the speed that the technology enables you to work at. So how much of a, how much interplay is there between technology and what's, what technology is able to achieve and the scale of, of sports media as a, you know, as a sector? It just seems to have ballooned out of all proportion to what it was uh, back in, in 1996. Well, I suppose 
part of that is to do with, if you think it from a from a pay TV point of view, clearly, you know, the boom in, in satellite technology and cable fibre speeds and all that sort of stuff has meant you can carry many more channels and now obviously there's, you know, Netflix adopters and so on, uh, even in the sports world. So clearly in terms of uh, our clients, that technology has enabled that huge explosion and the fact that you can watch, you know, just about every game if the rights holder allows it. Um, for us, um, I mean, fundamentally, it's still about providing the most interesting sports news and sport highlights. So the, sh- the ability to put out a lot more, you know, because part of our job is to filter and curate. So we could just do, you know, even more stories, but at some point our job is to make sure that our clients are getting the most relevant pieces. So we are still spending most of our money and spending most of our time on breaking sports news, on the stories about the top leagues and the highlights from the, the most interesting uh, sports events. And, uh, is, is the news uh, part of the of sports media, is that seeing the changes in how people consume sport earlier, things like you know, uh, picking up so much more through through social media outlets and so on. Is that something that you guys have been maybe two, three years ahead of, of where live broadcasting and, and so on is, uh, is now getting to? I think certainly uh, the, if you like, the, the fact that uh, digital technology, and increasingly so, is very well built for short-form content. And if you even now look at, at, at mobile consumption, it is built for that sort of snackable, you know, what someone once said to me is sort of, you know, sort of video sushi, you know, perfectly formed morsels of, of, uh, of content. Um, news, because in the nature of it being short-form and fast, is very well suited to technology that in the same way means you can do stuff very quickly and distribute content, you know, theoretically to anyone in the world instantaneously. So, yes, uh, if one looks at, you know, how much I, our producers and our clients use things like Twitter, including, you know, we obviously, we tweet every time we publish a story uh, to help our clients know that that's there. Those kind of tools are are absolutely part of what's meant, I would say, the news industry generally has been... uh, a key part of how you can use that te- technology to both gather and deliver news quickly. And where is this going for for you as an organisation and also for, for people working in your sector? I think, uh, well, I'll, I'll sort of repeat what I said before, that, that we still have to sort of, I think, stay true to the core of telling really interesting stories and spending the money on that. Uh, and also it gets, you know, you, you end up having to make technology choices and there's, you know, which is the next new platform and so on. So you have to be careful about what might be a flash in the pan and what's here to stay. And clearly some, some fairly obvious examples of those that, are, that are clearly have the scale and the, and the power. So um, I think for us, uh, two key things. Uh, one... Uh, I think our investment in the news gathering side will continue to grow for a few reasons. One, because that's content we're creating. We therefore have all rights to that, including digital, including social usage, which our clients are increasingly asking for. So the more we do that, you know, whether it's 12 crews in Rio or our coverage of the Ryder Cup, the more we can do that to for general news coverage, but also we get special requests from clients wanting access to particular athletes, that's that's a key part. So I think that will continue to accelerate actually at a faster pace than our investment in rights. Rights is obviously still fundamentally important, but 
um, on that topic, I think what we're starting to see, in fairness, is a more enlightened view from rights holders that in years gone by would have been very you know, fundamentally protective of. You know, live rights holders are spending a lot of money with them, but I think recognising, particularly as consumption changes because of the technology, you need to therefore be getting news about your sports events, press conferences and so on, and the highlights afterwards to the same audience. Um, and if you're not doing that, I think you're taking something of a risk, even if you're a premium rights holder, because you're competing for attention in a world that has shorter attention span, I read, um, with not just, you know, whether it's football trying to get more attention than basketball or whatever it is, it's also Minecraft and FIFA 17 and League of Legends and all the other things that, that people want to do, and obviously that varies by demographics. So um, for us... Uh, that investment in news and that investment in trying to provide the most important levels of coverage, it, it's still the fundamental thing that we focus on. We just will hope to do more of it more quickly as the technology continues to evolve. And do you ever find yourself coming across either a, a piece of technology or a, a means of delivery, whether that's a network or you know, a social network or whatever it might be, or a style of delivery, and, you're, and you have to say to yourself, this isn't appropriate for news delivery I'm trying to think of one that I'd say isn't appropriate I'm, you know, it's clear that things like let's say Twitter are very well built it's almost like a modern RSS feed right? it's a very well built thing for people who want to get access to news Facebook is a slightly different experience uh, as is Snapchat as is Instagram so I wouldn't say there's anything that I think is wrong for news to be doing but I suppose the other thing that that, that uh, we are experimenting with, well not just experimenting we've done quite a bit of, but doing more of is live, which obviously is a big topic, you know, Zuckerberg talks about everything being live in the future, etc so, and increasing of the technology and the connectivity is getting better, again so, you know, clearly people can periscope, they can, they can do lots of clever live things, whether it's on Facebook or YouTube and so on but even if you want to do it in a slightly more sort of industrial broadcast way as we want to, because we want to make sure it's high quality there are live view units and other suppliers and we're doing more of that Champions League presses and you know coverage around that we did the coverage of the Mayweather Pacquiao fight that kind of thing so I think I'm not yet clear how monetizable all of that live content is yet but I think that's an area where um, we will spend more money and more time looking at because we have got a fair bit of client interest in it because it's partly maybe because it's the topic du jour but also because um, you know clearly if it is a, a significant moment uh, then clearly people want to see that live. Or actually, just from a client point of view, what we find is it's almost an interesting byproduct that clients might say, "Look, I'm actually not going to run this press conference of, let's say, Mourinho live, but actually, you've therefore enabled me to get the rushes of that live, rather than choose the best five minutes that you've selected in your sort of editorial judgment. I'd rather actually see the whole thing." So weirdly, the live enables you to do some of that just from a pure delivery point of view rather than necessarily it being consumed live all right thanks very much Martin. my pleasure brad van wheely welcome to the sports pro podcast thanks very much so sport radar has uh, has kind of pivoted in the last what, 18 months or so into doing much more of this data distribution and you know not purely accumulating data and analyzing it and as you've done with your integrity products but um but 
sending it back out again. I mean, can, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure, you're right. You know, we've had a long history over well over a decade in supplying fast sports data to the betting market. Um, and in the last 18 months to two years, we've really started to um, enhance what we do with that data. We know it's amazing data. It's been great for the bookies for a lot of years. And now we want to turn our attention to the media and the digital space um, with that same data and in that enhanced data as well. And so for us, we're really focused um, on providing that data to media companies, publishers, telecommunications companies and app providers. And um, you know, I think we've really shown that we're serious about getting into this space with some of the big deals that we've done of late. Um, the most recent one being in the last couple of weeks, you know, signing a long-term deal with, with the NBA um, which now supports deals that we already have with the NHL and that we also have with the NFL as well. And so um, it's a huge new world for us um, and a huge opportunity that we're, we're really excited about and really focused on. And it is about not just the data now, but it's about the products um, and it's about the technology that we use to, to deliver that data to a whole new audience. And, and that's really the focus for at least my side of the business, which is the media and the digital side. I mean, what basically what... Um what direction is this this market travelling in? It's, it's. I mean, we're used to the idea of, of stats appended to to sports broadcasts. It's, you know, we're going back 30 years now almost. Where where is it breaking? Where, what's what's changing? You know, the the digital age has really brought a whole new level of expectation from sports fans around that data and around how it complements the broadcast um, the, that we have when we watch live sport. So for us, it's about providing that that second or that complementary experience, and um, that's so much about what we do and, and what our clients expect from us now. It's how do we take that data to a new level? How do we reimagine the experience so that if you're watching, for instance, the broadcast of um, of the NFL? Um, we can give you a lot more insight into what's happening on the field, um, you know, the speed at which these guys are running, the routes that they're running um, to, to make the plays, um, and how you use that data to complement um, you know, the TV. And, and that can be done via the mobile applications, of course, via websites, and via a whole lot of other new, new means and technologies that we see around here at Sportel this year to do that. And um, we're really trying to be at the forefront of that experience and, 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 as I said, really develop technology that sits on top of the data that is ultimately the core of our business. Yeah, I mean, what, is, is it a question at the moment of complementing what you'd call the traditional broadcast market? So you're, you're supplying broadcasters with, with that data, with streams that they can tailor to their own use? Yeah, it is. Um, you know, a good example is we've covered uh, football for many, many years and, and been very good at it. Um, but it goes well beyond just covering goals and corners and, and cards and these sort of areas. Uh, and yeah, we're now focusing a lot more on the deeper and the richer football experience. It's about you know what are the players doing on the field, and how far are they passing the ball, who's winning in a duel between two key players, and this really influences a lot of the different digital companies that we that we deal with. You know from a, I guess, a fantasy, a daily fantasy sports company perspective, you know, they want this, this innate level of detail to help a punter make a decision between two strikers on which one he's going to choose for his weekend lineup. you know, right through to a media publisher that's looking for a new angle on a player um, to either, you know, confirm or deny whether he really had a good game in line with, you know, I, 
guess some of the, the public record that's out there on social media about you know how good did a player really perform on the weekend. So for us, it is about um, trying to take it to the next level and trying to, as I said, enhance the experience with you know not just more data, but but really creating stories around that data that make sense um, and really sh- making sure that they make sense to the different audiences because the way that that a fantasy company wants to imagine the data can be sometimes quite different to how a digital publisher wants to use that same piece of data. Uh, and so the data is the one piece and then it's the products behind that that, that we're trying to, to really create for those different parts of the of the media industry. Yeah, can you foresee a, an era where a fan is building their own experience from data products that you have or that you know any, anyone in that space might have? Yeah, I think the fan is one level. Uh, I think our partners are another level. Um, you know, there's, there's definitely a, a big shift towards opening up some of the data and some of the products to to allow partners to work with that and, and again, reimagine the experience and do their own thing with it. And, and that's an area where we're looking at and, and we'll probably make some announcements next year about about how we allow other people to, to work with um, some of the areas of our business. Um, and at a fan level, yeah, I mean, we've seen in recent years the... Um, the increase in popularity around user-generated content we've seen with Twitter and Facebook and social media platforms that everyone now has has a voice to articulate what they see and what they think about a, a performance or a player uh, or a team. Uh, and in the same way that I, you know, I do see an opportunity more and more in the future that um, you know that customers and, and users, for that matter, and fans will be able to to interpret the data in their own way. Uh, and again, we're already seeing that with social media, and I think we'll see that with some of the new platforms and the new um, the new products that come along as well. Yeah. And how much um, how much is the conversation with not just rights holders but also you know teams teams in the NBA teams in the NFL who've maybe been very protective over statistics in years gone by. They're obviously a, a hugely important coaching and strategic aid. Um, what's what's the progress of that conversation? about what to release and, and you know what gives you that competitive advantage? Yeah, it's a really timely question at the moment for sure and I think there's always going to be a balance that needs to be struck. Um, I think some of that information, given that the technology is so good now, particularly on the player tracking front, I think there's always going to be a level of that data that remains protected um, for the teams um, because you know there are some sensitivities around that um, and, that, and that's fine and I, and I think that's okay. But I also see that, again, the player tracking and the, and the data that we're now able to, to capture, given the technology that exists, will still expose a lot more data and a lot more storytelling than we've ever had in the past. So, again, it is a balance, um, but I definitely think at the end of the day, the fans are the ones that are going to win with, with how we can do things differently now. Um, uh, just looking internally at, at Sport Radar, what have you had to do in order to make this this shift into, into a new market? What have you had to do uh, structurally to... to you know, build the capabilities to do that? Yeah, it's a, it's a really great question. Um, on the surface, you look at it and you say, OK, you know, we've been in the data game for, for 15 years or so and, and we have a lot of knowledge and insight in there, um, particularly when it relates to the betting market and bookmakers. Um, but the, the media customers have, in many areas, quite a different expectation of what they want from a business like Sport Radar. Um, and while certain things remain true, such as it needs to be fast and it needs to be accurate, regardless of whether it's a bookmaker, 
maker or it's a media client uh, and we've always been strong in those areas. The areas that are different from a media perspective where we've had to, to adjust, invest and, and, and build are in areas such as the depth of the data that we provide for different sports. Um, you know, in the past, a lot of the data simply relates to markets that you can bet on, but now we need to get deeper. We need to get into those player-level stats that I mentioned earlier in terms of the deeper football coverage that we have now, um, and we need to, to tell stories by getting into the into the story and into the matches a lot more. So I would say the big investment and the big change has been about more comprehensive coverage um, of, of the leagues and of the sports, and it's one of the big reasons that we've invested heavily in official rights, um, particularly on the US side, as I mentioned, with, with, with those three deals over the last year or so, and that is that it, it gives us access to, to data that no one else can capture uh, that is exclusive to us in, in partnership with the different leagues that we've, we've done those deals and um, you know, at the end of the day that's absolutely critical for our, our media partners um, to allow them to build premium products develop premium experiences and obviously at the end of the day they need to be able to commercialise this data uh, in, in order to, to, to make it successful for their own businesses so um, yeah, it's, it's, it's been a big and it's still an ongoing journey as well but it's about improving our scouting interfaces it's about developing new products whether it be widgets whether it be better APIs um, you know or whether it be a whole new level of capability to deal with um, you know the gigabytes and, and, and tr- terabytes of data that we now get from you know an NFL game for instance with the with the zebra trekking technology so um, I think the transformation is ongoing but I'd say the last two years you've done a, a really good job at, at providing product and, and data that's a lot more applicable for the, the media and the digital customers that we now serve. All right, thanks very much for joining us, bro. No worries. Thanks for having us. Enjoying this Sports Pro podcast? Well, we're also the sports industry leader in print, digital, and events. Head to sportspromedia.com for the latest features, news, and interviews from the business of sport. Help yourself to a subscription to our acclaimed magazine and find out about our unmissable conferences before anyone else. Get inside the industry with SportsPro. Hi again and welcome to the concluding part of the SportsPro Sportel podcast extravaganza. Um, Adam, what were some of your other impressions of, of the Sportel experience? Uh, I enjoyed my first Sportel actually. It was um, you know, eye-opening. Um, to be in, in Monte Carlo as it always is um, I enjoyed uh, La Liga's provocatively entitled panel Is Europe Ready for a Super League which they answered in the first well in the first question basically the answer is no um, because La Liga is too strong too powerful has too much money to make a, Euro- uh, a Super League viable I think that's known in the old trade as uh, the bait and switch <laughs> absolutely was because then they just went on to talk about how they're going to sell their rights over the next 10, 20 years um, I also enjoyed the uh, Viasma Ski Classic Series making it snow in Monte Carlo in, in October that was nice. impressive that was actually um, just just for the benefit of those who weren't there this was um, uh, a, a, a networking event just outside the um, the forum in a in a VIP truck which is taken to these long distance skiing events and they had snow machines outside beckoning people in for you know, for traditional kind of apres ski fare. Um, I actually was thrown when I left the forum. I thought, God, the weather has turned. That is yeah. shocking. But, um, yeah, I'm I'm very easily duped. Um, anything else that, that caught your eye? 
Uh, well, I know you want to talk about timber sports, which, which impressed you, so uh, I'll let you take over. Well, I think everyone wants to talk about timber sports. <laughs> um, but this is the thing of, of Sportel, is obviously for, uh, for rights holders the world over, this is uh, an opportunity to showcase their wares in front of uh, in front of buyers from the world's media, and that's the that's the entire purpose of of Sportel, really. Um, and you have the very very biggest up on that second floor, the likes of the NBA, who have these spectacular stands, and FEI, who had a, a wonderful uh, kind of stable thing going on with the saddle and all, all sorts of stuff. Um, you know, and and the Bundesliga are there, and uh, UFC are there, and of course the amount of uh, free tat being handed out as well by. The, the free mini Bundesliga ball probably being, being the best, but a little baseball uh, baseball glove keyring and uh, yeah, yeah, nice. yeah, bag full of tats to take home with me from Monaco. So yeah, um, and it was the aforementioned Steel Timber Sports League who had uh, who had supplied little little lumberjack keyrings. So little lumberjack man. I missed those. Didn't get one of those. Well, you got to you got to keep an eye out for these things. But basically. It's competitive logging, um, and they had taken the the prominent space outside um, outside the Grimaldi Forum just as people entered, and they had demonstrations. The one I caught was the uh, the manual axe demonstration. Uh, a guy managing to to I don't know dismember a piece of wood um, in about ten blows. That's a lot of that's a lot of innuendo there in in half a sentence. But you know these are these are the guys for whom it's it's their big shot. You feel um, and uh, and good luck to them. But there are yeah some bigger beasts um, prowling the floors and 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 trying to make the most of uh, of those three days of intense networking uh, in Monaco. And I was able to catch up with Campbell Jameson, who's the uh, general manager of commercial, basically the the head of the commercial operation at the International Cricket Council, um, and. He uh, was able to share some of his thoughts um, about what those few days in Monaco mean for rights holders. So let's have a listen. Campbell Jameson, um, welcome to the Sports Report Podcast. Thanks for uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for letting me come on and have a chat to you. So, uh, what's the what's the experience of Sportel like for? For a rights holder such as the ICC, what are you trying to get out of uh, of your days there? Like there's, there's a number of different uh, areas that we focus on when it comes to Sportel. Um, you know, one of them is looking at some of the new technologies um, that are that are on display um, from a production and a rights delivery perspective. So that's one angle. Another angle, another key angle is. Um, to meet up with, it uh, gives a great opportunity to meet up with all the partners that we have from a broadcast perspective and digital perspective in the one place at the same time. So it's, it's a great opportunity to do that without having to travel throughout the world to do it. Um, so that's, that's a, it's another key factor. And then thirdly is um, any rights that we do have uh, remaining that we need to exploit. It provides the opportunity to speak to those companies that are interested in, in, in acquiring them. So probably three key areas that we, we focus on when we come down to Sportel. Yeah. And what have your priorities been specifically for Sportel 2016? Priorities for myself specifically have been just to maintain the relationships we have with the, the current broadcasters that, that broadcast cricket. They, they are literally 
all here, or if not all, ninety to 95% of them were here um, at Sports Health. So my priority was just to maintain those relationships and then just to, uh, in, in a couple of key areas, just to find out what the landscape was uh, in relation to certain rights that we still need to exploit. So the two areas that I focused on uh, throughout the, the couple of days down in Monaco. I mean, obviously, this year you've had the World T20, which was, which is now very much established as uh, as your secondary event after the Cricket World Cup, um, and is an increasingly important event for you. Um, what was your experience of that? I know that you you expanded your uh, digital offering for that and and tweaked the delivery for some of it. What what were some of the experiences that you had, and, and what did they tell you about about the delivery of um, of major events? fantastic event um, that sort of broke all records in relation to broadcast reach and digital reach for, for ICC and for cricket. Um, I think um, it was interesting in that it was the first major event that we had actually undertaken production ourselves in-house through um, ICC TV, which we set up uh, last year. So that was our first major event we've delivered using that structure. Um, that had its challenges, but it worked um, exceptionally well and something that we'll certainly look at doing as we continue to move forward. So um, from that perspective, it was was really interesting but challenging. But on the, the other side was the, the new digital licensee program that we have in place, and that worked um, exceptionally well. I mean, it, it had teething problems at the start, but as a general rule, it, it's worked exceptionally well and some of the licensees that acquired those rights did uh, very well for, from a uh, rich uh, perspective. Mm. I mean, one of the conversations that a lot of people have been having in the weeks running up to Sportel has been about you know traditional viewing figures and, and the challenges of, of keeping live sport at the forefront when it comes to, to linear broadcasting. Um, obviously, as a, as a major event's organizer rather than a you know a week-to-week events organizer you, you've got slightly different challenges in that regard but how do you see that developing do you you know is is the traditional broadcast still going to be a, a major part of how people are thinking over the next decade or so or, or has the time already come to to start adapting I th- look i think the traditional uh, linear broadcast is going to remain um, a key player in the, in the sports, live sports right industry. I think that's a, I, I, I can see that being in place for the foreseeable future. I think well, where we're, we're already adapting and, and a number of other federations are doing that as well is, is what sits alongside the live um, linear TV, so your, your digital um, clips, your social media and various other platforms that, that are gaining great reach and um, viewership that, that support um, the live linear TV. So I think they both work um, side by side and I think they'll continue to um, work side by side and in effect um, promote each other or certainly promote the live um, linear broadcast of, of, of live events, sporting events. Yeah. And do you think that rights holders and... Um and broadcasters are on the right track when it comes to protecting the value of uh, of those those outlets, those ways of, of getting content to fans. I mean, look, your, your, your traditional broadcasters will will always argue that it um, devalues the, the live rights having clips in short form on other um, platforms. Um, but they'll always argue that that they need absolutely everything exclusive, with no opportunity for anyone else anywhere to access anything. Um, personally, 
I don't believe that's the right model. I think a model whereby you have um, certain content pushed out on digital platforms, which in effect promotes the live broadcast, is is the way to go. Um, and that well, we sort of proved that with the World 2020 um, recently, where the live rights were with uh, Sky in the UK. Um, the clip rights were with both ESPN and BBC um, in, in the UK and Sky have never done uh, as great a viewership numbers for cricket as, as that, that event and that was so at the first event where we actually had a clip offering on BBC and ESPN in the same territory and I think those clip offerings actually supported um, the drive to people to go to watch the live, uh, the live full live match or part of the full live match so I think they're complimentary. Another conversation that, that people have had um, is regarding kind of over-the-top delivery of, uh, you know, of, of live and on-demand content. And is, is that something that you have explored at all, perhaps not in markets like India or the UK, but, but in markets where, you know, there's an emerging cricketing fan base? Yeah, look, it, it, you know, we have looked at it. Um, we have looked at an OTT service and uh, various markets. Um, it's, it's quite a, it's quite an interesting offering, and it, it obviously it depends very much on the market that you're looking at and where it's placed with the sporting code that you're um, representing. But you know, from a from a cricket's perspective, in the markets where cricket's growing, um, to go down to the the road of an OTT service is, in, in our view, is probably not the right way to go. Where we're trying to get as much free-to-air access uh, and coverage to the sport as we possibly can. So putting it behind a, an OTT operator is almost going to you know, move away from that promotional aspect. So we'll always be conflicted in relation to an OTT or, a, or a, something on, on a free-to-air linear channel. And I think from a promotional perspective in a developing market, where we can, we'll certainly go the, the avenue of uh, open access. Um, what have your experiences been? You talked about new technologies there. Has there been anything that you've seen over the past couple of days that's really changed your mind about um, or, you know, inspired you in any way about what you can do to uh, to deliver cricket to people around the world? I think there's some really new, unique things being spoken about, um, particularly um, from a, uh, a, a, a VR perspective. Um, and I think we've, to us it's become a lot clearer about what the benefits to the sport and particularly the broadcast that, that may have. Um, where I think it, it's challenging and interesting is, is what is the commercial model for, um, for, for generating income off it um, outside of some sort of sponsor type brand activation. So I think we're, we're a lot clearer, particularly in that area, about where where we need to be and the model that we need to utilise to achieve what we want to achieve. And do you have any kind of timeline in place for when you'd introduce those kind of technologies or is it something where you're just weighing up and exploring all the options? We've, um, our, our chief executive recently came out with the, um, and, and sort of quoted that the Champions Trophy next year in England will be the first smart cricket event. Um, so we will be... Uh, doing everything possible to have as many new types of technologies involved um, at that event and to the game of cricket and there's a number of things that are being worked on at the moment that um, will be first for cricket during that event um, which we're looking forward to delivering.
All right. Thanks very much, Campbell. A pleasure. Um, pleasure talking to you. Okay. I think that's about all we've got time for on the Sports Pro podcast. Uh, thank you to everybody who contributed, and thank you most of all to you, Adam Nelson. Thank you most of all to you, the listener. Very good. <laughs> Thanks, guys. <laughs>